Welcome to the discussion, Use a Data-Driven Approach to Federal Climate Resilience, sponsored by LMI. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Kelly Canada. She's a senior consultant for sustainability at LMI. And Dr. Sharon Hayes is the chief technology officer at LMI. Good to have you both with us. And let's get right to this issue of sustainability, a big priority for the new administration. And in truth, it's been an issue for the government for some years running now. And that is the many assets that the government itself has that are susceptible to the effects of climate change. Maybe just give us a rundown of the scope of what we're talking about here, and then we can maybe discuss what the potential costs here are. Sure, yeah. I mean, the the climate-induced threats that are posed to the nation's infrastructure are truly broad. Um, Sea level rise caused by melting glaciers leads to inundation of buildings, bases, launch pads, other facilities um, on coastlines. Um, we know about uh, severe hurricanes that, um, and the damage they cause, but climate change will also be responsible for more frequent and more freakish storms. So 100-year floods could now occur more like every decade. Um, consider the changes to the polar vortex that are possible that bring things like snow and freezing temperatures to states like Texas. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have heat waves. Um, Southwest last year saw temperatures regularly in the 110-degree range. Those can stretch power grids to the breaking point. Um, make infrastructure like an asphalt runway unusable. Um, so those are just a few and the cost to society are somewhere in the tens to hundreds of billions of dollars and that's just in the US. But I think just as important are some of the intangible costs. Um, that includes certainly life and health but also accomplishment of government missions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. A number of hazards that Sharon mentioned and, and really from a federal government perspective, it's understanding what are the implications of those types of hazards. So that varies by the agency, by the type of mission that they're executing, and by the types of assets that they rely on in order to execute their mission. Um, So, you know, for example, in thinking of a hazard like hurricanes or or major storms, um, of course, you've got that direct damage or impairment to the federal asset, um, very costly to repair or replace. Um, but also, if you know, if I'm the de- uh, Department of Defense, I'm dealing with weeks, if not months, of lost mission readiness. I have a diminished capacity to deploy equipment and aircraft and, and personnel and time. Um, and then same same hazard if I'm, let's say, Coast Guard or FEMA, I need to be planning for an increased need to provide and deploy disaster relief in the U.S. as these events continue to occur with greater frequency and intensity. Uh, same hazard, another client or another agency, if, if I'm, let's say, CDC or Department of Health and Human Services, uh, there's going to be a need for more frequent real-time tracking and communication with the public uh, to be able to increase their preparedness to monitor the impacts of these types of events on things like water quality as well as the spread of disease. So it gets very complex when you start to think about different federal missions, how they execute the missions, and then really how are they exposed to climate change. You know, I'm thinking that uh, many of the pieces of infrastructure that the government owns and operates are not new. In fact, some of them are quite old and were built in a time when the climate was different and the patterns was different. I'm thinking, for example, right in downtown D.C., the Tiber Creek runs right under the Treasury Department and IRS headquarters, and it sometimes manifests itself and a lot of damage happens. This could be happening more wide scale, I guess, in many, many locations, basically, is what we're facing here. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
In fact, in the U.S., there's about 18,000 federal buildings that are within the 100-year floodplain, and their replacement value is over $80 billion. So yes, there is a lot of existing risk and existing facilities. All right. So in terms of preparedness, I mean, you can't replace every building or take everything ever built and put it on 20-foot stilts. Mm -hmm. So what does preparedness consist of? What does it look like? for something like the federal government with this gigantic number and diversity of assets that are at threat? So um, in thinking about preparedness and, and how the federal government just executes from day to day, fundamentally where the rubber meets the road and how agencies are operating is largely grounded in, in a lot of long established codes and standards. Um, everything from how you build a building and providing very specifics on uh, what materials to use, how to manage rainfall at the site of that asset, how to evaluate flood risk to a facility or, or a house or be able to price flood insurance or even determine whether or not a site is actually suitable for development. Um, and then also another example, how do you adequately account for um, the financial impact and losses to a federal asset when an event occurs? So fundamentally, good preparedness and a really great opportunity to use data analytics is using climate data, using future projections to actually update a lot of these standards that are basically based on the fact that, you know, weather of the past and climate conditions of the past can be used to predict the future. And unfortunately, we know that that's no longer the case because climate change is occurring. And revising these types of codes and standards is really one of those greatest opportunities to um, help inject data analytics into improving federal preparedness. And Sharon, what does some of that data look like? Because we have manifest weather data, the federal government itself produces ultimately all of the weather data, but then each individual location is so different and so unique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, data analytics are really important to climate resiliency and preparedness, um, in part because that preparedness starts with an understanding of, of the scope of the problem, as you said, not just globally, um, but at the place where impacts happen. Um, so you can't simply just look at historical weather and um, understand what temperature highs and lows are going to be. What we're really dependent on are climate models, which are really a digital twin of the Earth's environment, um, and they're critical to understanding what to expect. So that really leads to some big data-related challenges. Um, one is the sheer volume of those data. Um, what goes into those climate models? Data from satellites, uh, sea level, glacier size, CO2 in the atmosphere, ground-based measurements, and the data that come out are massive, petabytes in size. So turning those data into actual insights, into actionable information at a local level is a major challenge and doing that requires data analytics, new algorithms, automations, et cetera. Now, very often in the federal government and the federal sector, these kinds of analyses or even programs built around them don't happen unless someone says you gotta do it. Someone that has the power of the purse say, for example. So. What, what do you think is a good organizational approach to ensure that this happens because it's maybe a priority at the White House, but it's a very localized reality to carry out? Yeah, certainly more coordination between federal and state and local um, agencies is, is critical. Um, and, and that's been a challenge. And I think that's in part been a challenge because um, some of the policy issues that are um, at issue here are really sticky and 
um, the conversation uh, hasn't been as robust in recent years as it probably needs to be to really facilitate that conversation. And I'd actually like to add there that I think just kind of a basic step is just generally um, agencies and the functional groups within agencies need just more basic climate literacy. You know, what is it? Like, uh, what are the implications? You know, many of the things that I mentioned earlier. This is so critical because while there's a number of agencies like NASA and NOAA that are generating these massive data sets to kind of collectively improve our understanding of the science behind climate change, Frankly, those are not the parts of the agency that need to improve their decision making based on that climate data. Um, it's the people that sit at the top of agencies. They're formulating budgets. They're making procurement and asset management decisions, uh, monitoring and mitigating risk at the enterprise level. Um, there's so many different functional groups at every agency, again, that need to have that basic understanding of what climate change is so that they can make better decisions to help their agency, um, its programs, its assets, and certainly to protect its people. Um, and then I'll also mention kind of hand in hand with the climate literacy is also more um, understanding around environmental justice issues. Uh, that is certainly a priority of this administration as it should be. Uh, and at the same or at these same federal decision makers that will be issuing new guidance policies. Um, we certainly want to make sure that that includes the protection of and opportunities for uh, marginalized communities. But getting to the operation of agencies themselves, the agency heads are ultimately responsible for continuity of operations. So maybe this is something they need to build into the budget and fiscal reporting process, too, to account for what they need to do for preparedness. Certainly, and some of these some of these challenges really can be addressed um, at the executive level. So, we've seen um, at the onset of this administration a number of executive orders and other mechanisms um, where the, the White House can really direct agencies to take those kinds of steps. Um, so, we're already seeing that kind of activity. Yeah. Um, however, the uh, kind of the fiscal risk of climate change is actually not a new. Um, issue for the federal government. Um, in fact, the U.S. Government Accountability Office um, has its high risk list, and the fiscal challenges of climate change has been on that risk, or excuse me, that list for a number of years. And in recent times, kind of the federal progress and helping to resolve that risk has actually been downgraded. Um, that report actually does a really good job of kind of laying out why it's so critical and why there is such a fiscal risk to the federal government based upon um, the programs that it uh, uh, provides to the American people. That includes, you know, the national flood insurance and crop insurance program. Um, th those are programs that are taking on more and more debt because uh, federal payouts to cover losses are exceeding premiums that these programs are collecting. Um, certainly, we've already mentioned the government's role in providing disaster aid and coordinated response is something that's going to increase over time. Um, so there are a, just a lot of compelling evidence for why it's such a fiscal challenge for the government um, uh, to solve quickly moving forward. Yeah, I guess the more liable the government is for some of these programs, like you say, pension guarantees or crop insurance or flood insurance, whatever the case might be, the more they need to expand their notion of what could happen that could cause something in a fiscal sense to say nothing of an operational sense. Fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and fortunately, where you would want to see 
this type of information reported and disclosed to the American people and, and things like financial reports and risk profiles, largely in the past, it's been absent. So now we need to give federal managers um, and decision makers the information that they need so that they can better and more adequately report these challenges and get the resources to deal with them. I mean, I, I think a key issue here is the, the cycle in which these decisions are made. And in the federal government, the annual budget cycle makes it really easy just to look at near-term impacts and, and dollars um, are precious everywhere. So when you're thinking about climate change, you're really thinking about addressing and mitigating an issue that might not manifest itself for a decade or more. And that's a big challenge in the federal space. Okay, good food for thought on that note. We'll take a short break here. My guests are Dr. Sharon Hayes, she's the Chief Technology Officer at LMI, and Kelly Canada, Senior Consultant for Sustainability at LMI. And I'm Tom Temin. This discussion is Use a Data-Driven Approach to Reach Climate Resilience, sponsored by LMI here on Federal News Network. LMI is dedicated to powering a future-ready, high-performing government. For 60 years, we have served federal agencies, delivering solutions tailored to their missions in defense, national security, and health care. With expertise in digital and analytic solutions, logistics, and management advisory services, LMI helps customers grow, transform, and become more ready and resilient. Let us help you overcome today's challenges and anticipate tomorrow's. Visit us at LMI.org. Welcome back to our discussion, the use of data-driven approaches to reach climate resilience, sponsored by LMI here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Kelly Canada. She's a senior consultant for sustainability at LMI, and Dr. Sharon Hayes, the chief technology officer at LMI. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's get into the heart of this data and analysis that has to happen, this data-driven approach. You need the analytical tools. So give us a sense of the type of technical infrastructure and tools that you need to really approach the climate change analytical question at a federal agency? We talked a little bit about the, the challenges related to the sheer volume of the data and the supercomputers that are needed to run those big climate models and all of the data infrastructure that's needed just to manage and, and handle all of those, those data sets. But one of the other really big challenges for which we need additional tools are bringing, bringing together fundamentally different data sets. So climate models and building codes, integrating human behavior into these, into these models, um, both in terms of their reactions to and, and mitigations of climate change. So it really requires bringing together communities that aren't used to working together and may at a fundamental coding level speak completely different languages. Um, it also requires bringing together data experts, the data scientists and so forth, but also the subject matter experts who truly under, understand the underlying subject matter. So um, tools do exist. They've been developed in academia um, by the World Bank, for example, by the federal government itself, um, but also certainly in, in the private sector. and. Um, Kelly, I don't know, you may want to speak to, to some of those tools that the private sector is using right now because they're among the best that we have. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, in the recent past, there's been a lot of innovation in the private sector um, aimed at, again, uh, that improved disclosure and management of climate risks. Um, and there's lots of lessons that I think at the federal, state, and local level uh, government that we can learn here. Um, so one example, um, there's been a lot of push from financial investors, from shareholders, from insurers that want to make sure in this instance that private 
companies are adequately disclosing and managing the financial risks of climate change to their operations. And so as a result, we're seeing coming out of the private sector uh, recommendations and frameworks and approaches to developing um, ways to better and more adequately disclose risk and assess the financial impacts of that. Um, at L of My, we've actually got a great partnership with a company called the Climate Service. It's one of the best analytical platforms out there that's essentially taken this immense climate data, been able to merge it with um, economic modeling that essentially puts a price on the impact of different climate hazards um, to an organization at the level of its specific assets and aggregated all the way up to the portfolio. Uh, with an analytical tool like that, we see a tremendous amount of value to bring that kind of capability to federal agencies to both increase their ability to disclose and understand risks um, to their uh, stakeholders, which are essentially the American, uh, American taxpayer, um, but also understand where to prioritize and make investments in climate adaptation or in some cases divestments that can prevent future mission disruptions. Yeah, that brings up a question, too, because we talked about some of the data elements, and it could be a building code, and it could also be a localized climate model or a sea level model for that area. And uh, I remember many years ago, I was on the board of a nonprofit that had a large physical asset, and we brought in a consultant to evaluate how long the roof would last, how long the HVAC would last, and develop some kind of a plan to replace. That was a totally analog exercise and did not take into any account what could happen like a hurricane in the meantime. So you've got this challenge of combining analog, basically unstructured data with models that are highly technical pieces of data sets that you know anyone can use in a computer. So how do you merge something like that to get a realistic picture of what could happen that you can then account for and budget and, and report for? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the past, Many of that, uh, much of that work has been done um, very manually um, by changing, uh, changing different types of data. I mean, even uh, lat long versus UTM can completely um, undermine the, the tool at, at, at work. Um, so uh, new techniques, new tools that enable um, uh, data transformation, um, cleaning up of the data more in a more automated automated fashion are really, really important here because of the size of, of so many of, of the data sets. Um, so that's, that's one key area. And of course, the development of um, APIs and other ways to link different um, tools together, different methods, different data sets together um, are critical. And a number of government agencies have really focused on not just generating the data, but creating pathways to the data so that people can come and get the data, take it, use it in their own environment, merge it with their own data sets. Um, and that will continue to be critical. Because I would think there's the opportunity to save some labor because if you have say a federal building near a state house that's near a church, that's near a factory, you know, just making that up, but everyone has the same issue in the same location. So maybe some sharing could happen both strategically and also from a technical data sense. Sure, and that would also naturally lead to resource efficiencies as well, as all these organizations are collaborating together towards the same goal. Yeah, and so are there specific tools though, I guess, Sharon, you kind of alluded to this, that can do this now, that can kind of help you answer the questions you may have. And I guess maybe the question then is, how do you ask the right questions? It's a matter of data literacy, but more than that, it's a higher level questions you need to ask in understanding 
what's going on around you in the world. So how do you begin there to understand the questions that you will then apply data analytics to? Yeah, so much of it depends on, on the nature of the exact problem that's, um, that's trying to be solved because um, unfortunately, this is a wise falsification. And so the needs of the intelligence sector where they might be looking at uh, different places all over the globe and studying human behavior and how humans will react to increasing drought or lack of um, lack of crops that aren't able to grow in, in an, a changing climate. Um, that is completely different than the um, engineers that are looking at the built environment and whether and how building codes need to change. So it starts like a lot of, a lot of problems like this, a lot of technical problems with really understanding what the customer's problems are um, and what they're going to need, the environment that they are, um, are working in right now so that you're not reinventing the wheel or building completely new data environments for them. Um, but it, it's really that fundamental first step of understanding the problem and bringing the right experts to the problem because this will not be solved by data scientists alone. You have to have the subject matter experts in the conversation. And of course, the Biden administration, as we said at the outset, has issued presidential orders and statements on the importance of this, but that's not exactly deep policy development. In your opinion, what type of policy development, what kinds of new frameworks are needed to bring this subject, one, to the top of mind across the federal government, but two, to enable the kinds of investments in data analytics, data literacy, and so on that are needed to really take it on? Yeah, you know, I think, I think many of the frameworks actually exist. Um, I mean, when you look at the policy frameworks that are needed, I think they're really around three major issues. Um, continuing to advance the science in this area so that we have a better understanding of where and the extent uh, um, to which uh, these uh, climate impacts will be felt on a much more local level and not just a, a global level. Um, and certainly there are uh, interagency working groups that are focused on exactly that, that bring together not just the, the, the big ones, the NASA and the NOAA um, type agencies that are collecting those data, but um, a, a number of other agencies that help identify scope and, and perform the, the research that's needed. Um, but the other, the other big areas in technology, and you know, obviously the private sector is critical in developing new technologies, um, but the government can play a really foundational role in helping develop clean energy technologies that will help us produce less carbon, capture what carbon we do release, um, and uh, adapt to the climate-related challenges that we just can't prevent. So um, agencies like DOE have a leadership role there. But again, I think the frameworks exist for, for tackling that within the federal government. It's definitely the policy issues that are the biggest challenge um, because those involve Congress, those involve taxpayers, those involve local and state agencies and so forth. And Kelly, in the moment we have left, are there any organizations, federal, state, even private, that you can point to that are really good models for this that we can learn from? Uh, well, certainly LMI, no, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so there, you know, there has been some good progress at the state and local government level as well, um, where we're seeing some successful um, examples of like private public partnerships, um, but that's also actually helping or uh, occurring at the federal level as well. And things like where I've largely been focused over the last decade in sustainability, there are some great programs where it's bringing private sector capital to make infrastructure improvements, um, really more focused around things like energy efficiency, water efficiency, 
But why can't we put in climate adaptation measures and strategies like that as well? All right. Why can't we? Now we can. And I want to thank today's guests for giving us a guidance to this. Kelly Canada is a senior consultant for sustainability at LMI. Dr. Sharon Hayes is the chief technology officer at LMI. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search LMI. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Use a Data-Driven Approach to Federal Climate Resilience, sponsored by LMI on Federal News Network.